following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Turn to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra 9. Hope your heart's been encouraged. And uh, so far through singing, it's a blessing to look at some of those pictures. Of course, there's some heartache in seeing those and seeing the people that are with the Lord or uh, people that are not where they should be. Um, but as well, there's a lot of joy in seeing everything that God has accomplished. And, and uh, so praise the Lord for that. Well, Ezra chapter 9, we're going to look at the entire chapter this morning. Um, but before we get to the text, I've always been fascinated to hear the confessions of politicians, uh, celebrities, or other public figures. So, it happens all the time. We, we've all seen this, right? That a politician gets caught uh, doing something illegal. Or a famous person says something on TV that is offensive or inappropriate. Or a celebrity pastor gets caught in adultery, and they have to make a public apology for their sins. And, and we all know how it's going to go. That they get up there and, and they can never just say, what I did was horribly wrong, and I'm sorry. And it's crazy, because most reasonable people, if you just own what you did, and you commit to the fact that you're going to do your best never to do it again, most people are pretty forgiving. But that's just way too easy. And so, you know, they get up there, and, and, and instead of, of just apologizing for what they've done, they, they resort to vague generalities, empty excuses, and lots of flaky explanations. And the end result is, is that we despise the person more, not less. Because it's pretty clear that they're only sorry that they got caught. And they don't really want to own the consequences for their sin. They're, they're trying to avoid as much consequence as possible. And sometimes you just sit there, watch them, and think, like, couldn't you at least fake a little bit of humility? You know, the reality is, is that our world is running really low on humility and repentance. But Christians ought to be different. After all, the Bible teaches that confession should be a regular habit of our life. Because as Christians, we value our relationships with people. And we especially value our relationship with God. And, and you cannot have good relationships, and you as a sinner, and me as a sinner, we cannot have good relationships unless confession is a regular part of our life. And so this morning, we are going to look at a powerful passage, a powerful confession here in Ezra chapter 9. And, and this is among the greatest confessions that you will lead, read in the Bible, and it sets a wonderful example for us of how we should respond when we have sinned. And it begins in verses 1 through 4 by defining the problem at stake. And so let's go ahead and read uh, verses 1 through 4. It says, Now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land, according to their abominations. Those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the, Amorite, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has been intermingled with the peoples of the land. 
Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of my hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. Now, now verse 1 here begins uh, by saying, now when these things had been completed. So remember that chapter 8 tells the story about how Ezra led the second return to Jerusalem from Babylon. So, so, so this, event, this story takes place pretty quickly after Ezra arrives in Jerusalem. In fact, uh, chapter 10 verse 9 says that, that this whole situation comes to a head within four and a half months of when Ezra arrived in Jerusalem. And most likely, that's because Ezra, once he got back to Jerusalem, he immediately began doing what he came to do, which is he began preaching God's Word, reading the Scriptures, teaching them the sense, and as well, sending people throughout the countryside to do the same. And as you would expect, God's Word did what it always does. It began to convict. You know, when you study the Bible... With a, with a teachable heart, the Holy Spirit doesn't take long before He starts to put a finger on your various issues, your sores, the infections of your heart. And that's what God's did. God did. So, so as the people heard God's Word, they quickly realized that they had a problem. And specifically, the text tells us that the princes or, or the leaders of the people, they come to Ezra with the devastating news that many of the people... And verse 2 says, especially the princes, the rulers, the Levites, they had married foreign women in disobedience to God's law. Now, now this is going to be a major issue throughout this time period because Ezra addresses this issue. Nehemiah is going to address this issue. And then the prophet Malachi, who was a contemporary of these two men, he also addresses this issue of, uh, of marriage. And and to make matters worse, Malachi tells us in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, that not only had many of the Jews married Gentile women, but they had also first divorced their Jewish wives so that they were free to marry these Gentile women. We don't know exactly what their motive was. Could have been money. Could have been that they were younger and more attractive. Could have been you know, to, to deal with diplomacy, to kind of uh, help relations with their neighbors. But, but they had done this thing which was in violation to God's Word. And when Ezra hears the news, he is devastated. He says, says in the text here that he was appalled by what is taking place. Now, it's very important that we understand why he is appalled and what is the problem here so that we make right application. And I especially want to emphasize that, that Ezra's sorrow is not rooted in racism, but instead in a passion for holiness. So, so the problem here is not so much interracial marriage as it is interfaith marriage. You understand the difference? And ultimately, the issue was obedience to God because God had clearly said to Israel that they were not to intermarry with the pagan peoples around them. So, so keep your finger here and turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 7. 
Because this passage provides really important context for, for what Ezra is doing here. And, and as I read this passage, I want you to imagine that you're there in Jerusalem and Ezra is preaching to you. Alright? And he gets to this passage and he reads it. And so it says in Deuteronomy 7, verse 1. And of course, this is Moses speaking in the wilderness just before Israel enters the land. And it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their ashram and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now I recognize that in our day, this passage might come across as extremely arrogant, violent, and potentially as well racist. So, so we have to appreciate what God's purpose is in all of this. And that it's really defined for us in verse 6. So, so God here tells them that they are to remain separate from the nations because God is concerned that Israel have an undivided, zealous loyalty to Him. And that was for their good, right? Because, because as Israel was devoted to the Lord, as they were close to the Lord, it was then that, that God could draw near to them, that, that they could enjoy His grace among them, and then that they could serve as a light to the nations. If they were unholy and ungodly, they could not be the, the testimony that they needed to be. So, so the holiness of the people was paramount. So, so therefore, God forbids Israel from intermarrying with their pagan neighbors, lest, as he says, they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So God had been very clear about this issue. Now you can imagine, returning to Ezra, what the response of the people was when Ezra reads this text. You know, there's this awkward silence like, uh-oh, we have a problem here. And, um, and so Ezra's reading the passage. They understand that they have sinned against the Lord. And, and, and notice in Ezra, 2, or in Ezra 9, verse 2, that, that the people that report to Ezra, they, they understand exactly what the issue is. That the holy race, or really it should really be, the idea more is seed than holy race. The holy seed has intermingled with the peoples of the land. So, so I want to emphasize the significance there of a holy race seed. I mean, the issue is not genetics. The issue is godliness. And after all, I mean, the Bible speaks positively of, of Gentile wives like Rahab or Ruth. 
Because when Rahab and Ruth came into the nation, they converted to the worship of the true God. And of course, they are in the line of David and ultimately the line of Christ. So, so God's concern here is not genetics. No, His concern is that Israel maintains an undivided devotion to Him. And that they raise their children with the same undivided attention and, and exclusive worship of the true God of Israel. And of course, that would be nearly impossible if they're marrying Gentile women. You know, it's particularly, I mean, you know, it's nearly impossible if, if you're marrying a Gentile wife and she is worshiping another God. I mean, what are the chances that she's going to raise her, child, her children to worship the God of Israel? And so I have to emphasize that the New Testament also demands that Christians only marry Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39 says, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. And that phrase, only in the Lord, there has to be speaking about the fact that the man that this woman would marry has to be a Christian. She has to be in the Lord. So, so we are only to marry fellow believers. And, and, and folks, that only makes sense, right? Because as a Christian, my faith is the most precious thing about me. And so if I don't share the most precious thing about me with my spouse, then that's going to be a real problem. It's going to be a real drag on my marriage. And it's almost certainly going to be a real drag on my relationship to Christ. And it will certainly compromise your ability to raise children with an exclusive devotion to the Savior. So, so teenagers, single adults who are in this room, you know, I want to urge you to decide right now that marrying an unbeliever is out of the question. Like, as you think about all the potential spouses that are out there in the world, Unbeliever, that whole block, it's out of the question. You're not even going to consider it. And I would add to that beyond that, that you would not even date someone who is an unbeliever. And it's not because you think you're better. Right? And I, you know, I, I, was, I, grew up, I was in public school and high school, and, and I had to deal with this issue all the time going to high school. You know, you think you're better because you won't date an unbelie- you know, a girl that doesn't believe just like you. And of course, everyone in my little town believe- said they were a Christian. So, so, so the world might look at it as you saying that you're better than people, but it's not that you think you're better. It's that you believe that Christ is better. And, and you want your heart to be fully devoted to Him. So, so why even open your heart to the temptation of crossing that line by becoming romantically involved and giving your heart to someone who does not know Christ? So, so stay faithful to what the Scriptures say. Well, we'll return to the story. When Ezra receives this awful news, he is devastated. The text tells us he tears his garment, he, he literally pulls out some of his hair. And it's interesting that verse 4 describes those who gathered around Ezra as those who trembled at the words of the God of Israel. Yeah, and so you can't have a high view of Scripture and also have a low view of sin. No, the people that reverence the Word of God, they see what is happening among their nation and they tremble, they, they, they grieve over what's taking place. 
And so Ezra and his companions mourned. And verses 4 and 5 say they mourned in humiliation until the evening sacrifice. You know, that's a very different response from so many public figures when they sin, right? You know, Ezra didn't make excuses. He didn't shift the blame. And say, well, God, if you would make things easier, maybe we wouldn't be doing this. He didn't excuse what had taken place or pass it off as no big deal. No, he faced it. He looked the sin, he looked at it honestly for what it really was as rebellion against God, and he dealt with it. And I do want to emphasize that our faith as Christians uniquely equips us to do this. Because we believe in a sovereign and gracious God who has provided forgiveness for us in the Gospel. And so, an unbeliever doesn't have that, right? But he doesn't know that his soul is secure in Jesus. He doesn't know that there is hope and forgiveness in Christ. And so he's going to be tempted to, to just pretend like it's not there. You know, close my eyes, pretend like it's not there. If I, if I forget about it, it won't be there. No, as Christians, we are uniquely equipped to this. I really appreciate this quote by uh, Jerry Bridges. Uh, he puts it well when he says, we can get it to that. I'm not sure what's going on here. The next slide, hopefully. There we go. Jerry Bridges says, The gospel applied to our hearts every day frees us to be brutally honest with ourselves and with God. The assurance of His total forgiveness of our sins through the blood of Christ means that we don't have to play defensive games anymore. We don't have to rationalize and excuse our sins. We can say we told a lie instead of we exaggerated a bit. We can call sin exactly what it is, regardless of how ugly and shameful it may be, because we know that Jesus bore that sin in His body on the cross. Now, I love that quote. And and what he's saying there is that we can confront our sin with confidence. We we don't have to hide from it or or pretend like it's not there. And we can do so in a way that, that no unbeliever can because we are absolutely secure in the Father's love, and we are certain of His forgiveness. And so when I sin and I come to God to confess my sin, I'm not terrified of doing so because I'm not going to the principal's office. I'm going to my Heavenly Father. And so I don't have to come when I've sinned against God and put on some pressure-packed performance designed to impress God and to earn back His favor by how I beat myself up and how I tear myself apart? No. When when I've sinned, I come to God, and like Ezra does here, I grieve over my sin. Because it is evil and wretched. But then I run to the cross, where, where, where I rest in God's mercy. And so we all ought to be thankful today and grateful that we can approach confession in a way that really no one else can because of the security and the power of the cross. Well, with that in mind, let's read Ezra's confession in verses 5 through 15. And so, uh, verse 5 says, But at the evening offering I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, O my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen above our heads, and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. 
Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to plunder, and to open shame as it is this day. But now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in His holy place, that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God to restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the land, with their abominations which have filled it from end to end and with their impurity. So now do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, And never seek their peace or their prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escaped remnant as this, shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the people who committed these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction? until there is no remnant nor any who escape? O Lord God of Israel, You are righteous, for we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before You in our guilt. No one can stand before You because of this. Now I'd like to break our study of this um, confession down into four lessons that we can learn uh, from Ezra's example. When you sin and you need to come to the Lord and confess it, what should you do? And the first lesson is, be honest about sin's severity. Now, when you read through this passage, I mean, can you imagine a celebrity doing what Ezra does here? I mean, no way. And frankly, in much of Christianity even, it's hard to imagine many Christians doing this. Because because shame and, and embarrassment are things that, that we, you know, they're, they're toxic, they're bad, and so we, we try and blank them out of our lives entirely. But what does Ezra say? He says in verse 6, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God. What a statement. You know, one of the tragedies of our modern age is that we have lost all sense of how evil sin really is. We've worn sin down to nothing more than a mistake. You know, a tragedy of circumstance. A product of my environment. But Ezra declares that sin is horrible. It is a rebellious offense against a holy God. And furthermore, we we aren't good people who just occasionally do bad things. No, he says, going on in verse 6, Our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. That's not a very feel-good verse, is it? And yet it's true. The Bible is clear that all of us are rebels against God who break His will every day and our sin deserves the eternal wrath of God. And folks, we don't help ourselves 
and we don't help anyone around us by hiding from that reality, it is necessary that we see that so that we rightly see the cross. And Ezra does this in verse 7. And Ezra does this in verse 7 as he sets the current issue in historical perspective. Now, now, now to appreciate verse 7, folks, I mean, we have to remember that, that when Ezra is speaking, it has been 150 years of absolute torture and brutality for the Jews at the hands of the Babylonians and the Persians. I mean, their women have been raped. Their children have been killed. They've been carried off into captivity. All their wealth has been wrongly taken from them. I mean, it was bad. But, but does Ezra whine and complain and say you know, that God's been unfair? No, he says, God, we deserved all of it. We deserved every bit of the torture that we have deserved. We have, we have endured because we have sinned against your will. That's heavy stuff to say. And, and, and it's important that we are just as honest about our sin. I mean, your sin and my sin is, is not just a mistake. It is rebellion against your Creator and Lord. And the cost of my sin was the infinite life of Jesus. That's, it's hard to deal with that, right? That's not a comfortable reality to recognize. And yet the only way that I will hate my sin and the only way that I will run to the cross like I need to is if I live in the reality of that fact. So when you sin, you know, don't ignore it. Don't dismiss it. Don't try and come up with every excuse in the book. Don't try and find some way to blame God. No, confess it to the Lord for the evil that it really is and, and run to Him for forgiveness. Now, and let me add that the spirit of this verse is a telling fruit of a genuine work of salvation by God's Spirit. You know, getting saved, becoming a Christian, is not just merely turning over a new leaf in your life. Or, you know, making God a part of my life. No. I mean, getting saved, being born again, begins with an understanding that I deserve wrath. God is my authority. I have sinned against His will. And I deserve His judgment. And, and if your sin doesn't grieve you like that, you know, if you just, you know, ah, you know, I like having God and I like my sin and I don't really care that I have these issues. If your sin does not grieve you or break you, it's possible that you have never really repented and been born again. Because God's Spirit never leaves a Christian comfortable in his sin. Now, we're, we might, we're going to continue to sin. We're going to have problems. Sometimes we have blind spots. But when a Christian is confronted with his sin, we grieve over it. And we're convicted. And so I know all that might sound harsh. But it is so important because the only way that my heart can really be filled with the grace of God I mean, the, only re the, the only way that I can really appreciate Good Friday and Easter is if I see them through the lens of my evil rebellion against God and the fact that I deserve His eternal judgment. I mean, I have to be emptied of my self-righteousness and my pride before any of that truly means all that it does. So, so be honest about sin severity because that enables you to practice the second lesson of this passage 
which is that we must give thanks for God's kindness. Give thanks for God's kindness. So, so, so to, um, Ezra says in verse 8, he says, But now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in his holy place, that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. Now, again, when we read that verse, it's really important that, that you read it in light of the horrors that Israel had endured and, 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 and just their, their difficult situation. And guys, life is not easy for them. But, but because Ezra understood sin's severity, he was able to see their situation in light of God's marvelous grace. That's so important. You know, so specifically, Ezra rejoices over the grace that God had shown the, the past 80 years. So, so, so thousands of people had come home from captivity. They had rebuilt their temple. And God was at work to bring revival. Now, to an outsider, none of that was very impressive. I mean, if you had brought Joe Schmo from Babylon over to Jerusalem and given him a little tour, he would have been like, nah, that's not anything. But, but because Ezra understood how Israel had sinned, and the fact that, that really they deserved to be wiped from the face of the earth except for God's covenant promise. He was amazed at God's goodness. And so he gives thanks for God's loving kindness or His steadfast love as seen in everything that He had done for them. And that's such a good example for us because we all have proud hearts that, that, that lean towards an inflated view of self. And we all like to think that God owes me something. Well, I, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, I love Jesus and I've lived a good life and so God ought to do this for me. He ought to give me this and give me that. And it's important that I make myself see that I am a sinner and that what I deserve is wrath, not kindness. Because only then can I see the kindness of God as it really is and worship Him for it. And so it is so important that we recognize the kindness of God from a perspective that recognizes my sin. And then the third lesson is that we must submit to God's commands. Submit to God's commands. And the thought of verses 10-12 through 12 is very similar to what we see in verses 6 and 7, but with a special focus on the authority of God's Word. So, so Ezra doesn't say, as, as we so often hear today, well, it's just a matter of perspective. Or... Well, the way I see it, or according to my morality, or my truth. No, instead, he simply says in verse 10, we have forsaken your commandments. So, so the assumption is, is that God's word is authoritative. And then verses 11 and 12 summarize what, what God had said about Israel's relationship with its idolatrous neighbors. God had said, remain separate so that their neighbors would not tempt them to abandon God or their commitment to Him. And Ezra acknowledges that all of that was for Israel's good. You know, they would be strong, and they would eat the good things of the land. Yeah, and that's a good reminder too, because, because yes, your sin oftentimes will bring temporary relief from hardship and make life feel good. Sin oftentimes is enjoyable. But from a long-term perspective, 
It is always foolish to sin. It is always wise to obey God. Because God is good. And His purposes are good. And so Ezra acknowledges that. So so he doesn't make excuses. He doesn't explain away their sin. He confesses that Israel had rebelled against God's good and authoritative word. And it is so important that I do the same when I sin. You know, I mean, how many people, you get pulled over by a cop. Have you ever been pulled over a cop and just said, Sir, I was wrong. I mean, no one says that, right? We've got a list of excuses a mile long. And we do the same with God. When we come to God, when we sin, we just need to say, God, I've sinned. I've broken your word. Acknowledge his authority, call your sin what it is, and look to him for grace. You know, because it's only when you do that that you can really be restored to a healthy and, and, and meaningful relationship to him. You know, I, I think of my kids. You know, my kids disobey a rule, and we have to punish them. You know, so we punish our kids, and then you say, you know, tell daddy I'm sorry I disobeyed. You know, and, and a lot of times they don't want to do it, right? Fold their hands, and they just kind of look at you. And we do the same with God, all right? So, not just picking on my kids. You know, we, we fold our hands, we're like, I don't know if I want to admit it. Yeah, you know, but then once, you know, but then once they, they say it, I'm sorry. You know, then, I mean, like, it's like when they say it, they, in the same act, they're falling on dad. Because admitting my sin is part of restoring that fellowship and that relationship. And, and as long as you are holding on to your sin, as long as you are making excuses about it, as long as you are resisting the authority of God, you will never be able to truly rest in His grace and in His nearness. So, so, so call your sin what it is. Submit to Him. And then finally, plead for God's mercy. Plead for God's mercy. Look again at verse 15. It says, O Lord God of Israel, You are righteous. For we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before You in our guilt. For no one can stand before You because of this. And this is a powerful conclusion to the prayer. Now, now we might be surprised that He uses the word righteous here because we tend to think of God's righteousness as as purely in terms of His justice that drives Him to punish sin. But, but, But Ezra here actually calls on the righteousness of God as a means to God's forgiveness. And that's because God's righteousness is, does not just drive him to judge. God's righteousness also drives him to keep his promise to his people. Now think of 1 John 1.9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just or righteous to forgive. So, so God's promise to his people compels him not just to judge sin, but it compels him to keep his promise to us. So so Ezra comes to God here, and he says, God, we aren't back in this land because we earned it. We are here because you are mercifully faithful to your promise. And then he humbly casts himself on that mercy. He doesn't tell God, you know, God, you, you really ought to love us. We're pretty special people over here, and and, and you're really going to be thankful that you have us. He doesn't offer to buy back God's favor by doing some grand deed. 
You know, God, you know, I'll, I'll give you all this money. I'll do this and this and this and this. And I'll, 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 I'll take care of this guy and do this over here. And, and then you'll forgive me. No, instead, what's he say? He says, we are before you in our guilt. We don't deserve mercy. And we have no merit on which to stand. Our only hope is that you forgive. And I want to emphasize that this is the attitude of the sinner who comes to Christ for salvation. You don't become a Christian by impressing God with, with all of your good deeds or, or your family history. You don't give Him some emotional speech. You don't argue Him into believing that you are worthy of His love. Well, the way you become a Christian is by coming to God as a broken sinner and simply saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And then you cast yourself in the salvation that Jesus provided in the cross. You trust wholly and completely in what He did. And so maybe you've never done that before. Maybe you've spent your whole life you know, trying to, 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 to believe that you are good enough for God to love you. And I hope you'll see today that you will never be good enough for God to love you. And all you need to do, and all God requires, is that you come to Him, you acknowledge Him for who He is, you acknowledge your sin for the evil that it is. And like Ezra, you say, we are before you in our guilt. I need forgiveness. And the Bible promises that when you do that, He will save. So if you have never done that before, please today, come to Christ with a broken heart and receive His salvation. And then, as a Christian, maintain that same humble dependence on God's mercy throughout your entire life. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, is, is famous for having said on his deathbed, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. I mean, wouldn't it, I mean, I mean, those, those, I mean, there's nothing else that's more important than that, right? Like, like nothing should be in our heart more than I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. And then finally, you know, maybe as we've worked our way through this text, God is convicting you over some sin in your life that you need to make right. And maybe you're sitting there resistant. Like, God, I don't want, quite want to do this one. Now, don't make excuses about it. Don't minimize it. Don't try and come up with some tale that's rooted in your insecurity. And certainly don't try and hide it because you can't hide anything from God. Just come to Christ broken over your sin with honesty and humility. And say like Ezra does, I am ashamed and embarrassed, but I come to you, my Father, and I trust in your matchless grace to forgive. And if you do that, He will forgive. Let's have everyone bow your head and close your eyes. There's a lot here for us to think about and reflect on. And just before we sing, I, I want to ask if there's anyone here that would say, you know, Pastor Kid, I don't know that my sins are forgiven. I've been trusting in the wrong thing for my salvation. And I would like you to pray for me and, and potentially talk with me about how I can know that I am saved. If there's anyone here that you don't know you're saved and, and you'd like prayer, you'd like someone to potentially counsel with you, could you just raise your hand so that we can give you the help? Amen. Thank you for that. Anyone else? We'd love to follow up and just help you know that your sins are forgiven and you're in Christ. Lord, thank You for this Word. 
and thank You for the truth of it. Lord, please help us to respond. And Lord, help us to trust in You and rest in You. And God, thank You for the rest that we have in Jesus. And God, I pray that all of us would trust in Him. In Christ's name, Amen.